And a lot of Americans say, well, you know, we may not all agree, but, you know, there's many paths to heaven. All you need to do is pick one. Well, verse 15, which we will not dissect today, tells us that these false teachers have forsaken the right way, which simply means they're going the wrong way. Every path is not right and true. And though we may not think that God really cares, and while we may look around our world that seemingly is getting increasingly evil, and we think that God is asleep, Peter wants us to know that God is very much in tune with everything that is happening. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Buford, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we find ourselves in chapter 16, where unfolded for the reader is the third set of judgments God unleashes on the earth following the rapture of the church. These bold judgments, as they are called, consist of plagues and fire, and we'll see what else in a couple of days. But today, Pastor Carl spends time both in Revelation and in 2 Peter looking at some bad angels in a message entitled, The God of Judgment and Grace. Would you take the Word of God this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 16. You can see that the title of this morning's message is, The God of Judgment and the God of Grace. Now, we have in this 16th chapter been studying the bold judgments of God. And if you were here last time, when you come to this 16th chapter, it is obvious that the dam of God's great grace and love and patience has broken to His wrath. And when you reach this 16th chapter, it's obvious that what David prophesied in Psalm 103, that God would would not keep his anger forever. You see the fullest expression of God's anger that you will ever see apart from the lake of fire. And all the way through this seven-year period, God has been turning up the thermostat, the rheostat of his, of his wrath. And the greatest expression is seen in these seven bowls. But as this chart reminds you, uh, you do not have to be here for this coming time because the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. All of a sudden, in a moment's time, it could happen today, all true Christians will suddenly be gone across the planet. And a short time thereafter, weeks, days, maybe hours, we don't know for sure, a peace treaty will be signed with the nation of Israel. A false Messiah will come on the scene. And this seven-year period that is defined as such, not just by the revelation, but also by the prophet Daniel, is divided into two halves in both of those books. The first half, Israel is falsely protected, and then in the second half, she is unjustly persecuted. In the first half, you find the seal judgments, seven seals, and in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets. And there's an event right in the middle of this seven-year period known as the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist in an idolatrous act will claim to be God and will invite people through his false prophet to worship a statue there in the temple. And the Jews will have their eyes opened and they will reject this man. And they will be persecuted like they will never have been before. During this time in human history, two-thirds of all the living Jews will die during this seven-year period. 
But God will save a remnant for himself. And in the second half, the trumpet judgments unfold, seven of which are recorded in Scripture. And in the seventh trumpet are seven bulls of wrath. Now, when you come to this 16th chapter, there's plague after plague after plague coming like a trip hammer. We saw first the malignant sores that men would experience. We saw the oceans, the seas of this world literally turn into blood. And then all the fresh water sources are turned into blood. If that were not enough, men are scorched by the heat of the sun. They're burned. Added to that, there's a period of darkness followed by deception. And all people can do in the darkness is literally gnaw their tongues because of the pain. And people who would read this section, if this is all they read, they might say, where is the God of compassion and grace and love? And God actually anticipates that question, that it would be in some people's minds. And so he's going to give us an explanation. I was speaking with a young woman this week who told me that her brother had just one way of thinking. And she said, I resent all these people who go around saying that if you do not believe the way he believed, and he believed on the Lord Jesus as his Savior. I did his funeral this week. He's 23 years old. That if you don't believe the way he believed, that you go to hell. And I explained to her, I said, look, the, the message of Christianity sometimes can be portrayed out of balance. That God is pictured only as a God of wrath, but not a God of love and compassion. And yet, if you read the Revelation in its whole, you see both expressions of the wrath of God and the grace and love and the compassion of God. But here in the worst of all the tribulation, anticipating that some people may accuse God of being unjust, God has two angels step up to the plate. Here in verse 5, notice, and I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. The angels of the waters, there's angels that have different ministries, and there's one angel who's over the waters, and I often wonder, I'll find out when I get to heaven, if this angel was over even the waters of judgment in Noah's day. But he's clearly over the waters during the time of this seven-year period, and he says, just the opposite is true. Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. And then he further elaborates in verse 6, because they meaning these who took the mark of the beast, who martyred the saints, poured out the blood of the saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And then a second witness, because everything is to be confirmed by the mouth of two or, wit two or three witnesses steps up. And a second angel, I heard the altar saying, meaning a second angel at the altar, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And I said to this woman, I said, listen, if the Bible is true, hell is a very real place. But I also told her that we don't speak like her brother didn't speak. He didn't speak just about the judgment of God. He also spoke about the grace of God Almighty and the compassion of God Almighty. And we paint a full picture of the living God. So a few times here in the course of the Revelation, I've pushed the pause button, and this is one of those mornings, because I want to develop a systematic theology in your thinking 
that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Some people say, well, you know, I, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I said, they haven't read the New Testament very well because really the expressions of God's judgment and wrath are far greater in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. But he is not only a God of judgment, he is a God of grace. And so I want us to look at a number of different passages this morning that affirm that truth. And we're going to study it systematically. But as our central text this morning, I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're in the Revelation, you're new to the Bible, just fan back a little bit, and you will soon come to 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, before I read our passage, let me set it in its context. When you come to 2 Peter chapter 2, the tone dramatically changes because in the first chapter, it's filled with encouragement on how to live a holy life. And the second chapter is filled with warning about heresy and false teachers. And in verse 1 of this chapter, he tells us just as there were false teachers during the Old Testament, he tells us there will be false teachers during the New Covenant time. And so if you will notice verse 1 of this chapter, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also, uh, just as there will be also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He gives us four characteristics of a false pastor, a false teacher, a false prophet. Number one, they're men of deception, and so they're called false false teachers, false prophets, their message is not true. And many times it's just out of balance. Second, they are men of destruction. They destroy good churches. Jude and the parallel text says they, they secretly enter into the church unnoticed and they ruin great churches. And there were once great churches and great institutions in America that today are apostate. The devil as an angel of light, as we discussed last week, will bring these teachers into the church. And what is so challenging is that they use the language of historic Christianity, but they use a different dictionary in which to define the terms. They're men of deception. They're men of destruction. Third, they are men of denial. They deny the Savior who bought them. I hope you know, contrary to my five-point Calvinist friends, Christ died for everyone, even the false prophet who denies them, as this text highlights. And fourth, he tells us there are men with evil desires. They are driven by sensuality and greed. And that's all in the first three verses. Now, with that description of a false teacher, he then gives a very severe warning and a wonderful promise. Follow along as we read, beginning now in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. 
then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, again, I want to speak on the God of judgment and the God of grace. And I want us to consider that God is a God of judgment and wrath, but God is also a God of grace and rescue. And those are not two opposing characteristics. They're not two opposing thoughts. They make up the very nature of God. God does not hold back his judgment, but does, neither does God withhold his grace. And to help us to understand that, Peter dips back into the Old Testament, and he gives us three illustrations of God's wrath, and then he gives us two illustrations of God's grace, and then he gives us a present-day application for everyone sitting within the sound of my voice. Now, if you're using your outline, first, I want you to see that a day is coming when false teachers will experience the judgment of God. False teachers will experience the judgment of God. Peter saw no hope for these apostates. Their doom was sealed. You say, I thought if there's breath, there's hope. Not always. A person can cross a line known only to God where they can no longer ever cross back. And their doom is sealed. And he will describe such men in this text. Now, his attitude, Peter's attitude, is different from the tolerant mindset of many Americans. And a lot of Americans say, well, you know, we may not all agree, but, you know, there's many paths to heaven. All you need to do is pick one. Well, verse 15, which we will not dissect today, tells us that these false teachers have forsaken the right way, which simply means they're going the wrong way. Every path is not right and true. And though we may not think that God really cares, and while we may look around our world that seemingly is getting increasingly evil, and we think that God is asleep, Peter wants us to know that God is very much in tune with everything that is happening. He just told us at verse 3 that their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. They've already been tried and found guilty. And while we cannot see the judgment yet, payday is someday, it is coming. God promises it. God is not going to wink at sin. God is going to judge every sin. And what we fail to understand is that God cannot, God will not, God can never, ever overlook a single sin or he would topple from his throne of righteousness. And I hope every unrepentant sinner within the sound of my voice is listening, and I hope every believer is listening, that we might carry out our ministry of warning people of the wrath to come. So pay close attention to these three illustrations. First, I want you to notice that God showed his judgment when he punished angels. God showed his judgment when he punished angels. We read in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. Now, there's a lot we do not know about the creation of angels and the fall of Lucifer and his demons, but there's a whole lot that we do know in terms of how the star of the morning became the father of darkness. 
And if you were with us earlier in our series in Revelation in the 12th chapter, we discussed that and we, look at, we looked at some of the parallel passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that describe the fall of Satan. And from those passages, it is clear that Lucifer was once the chief angel of God, but in his pride, he rebelled against God and with him one third of all the angels, Revelation 12, 4 teaches. And so today, you can take all the angels in the world and you can divide them into two categories. There are holy and elect angels, and then they are fallen angels that are called demons. And even amongst the fallen angels, there are two categories. There are those who are free to roam and wage war in the heavenly places, and they will try to wage war in your life and among our presence this week. And then there's a category of bound angels, and even those bound angels fall into two categories. We've studied a group of angels that are in the abyss. They've committed heinous, wicked things that God locks them up. But those angels are going to be released someday during the time of the tribulation. But there's a second category of angels that do not have freedom to roam and wage war, and they are eternally bound and will never be freed to wage war. And that's what he's describing here. Angels who've been committed to pits of darkness. The King James renders it this way. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. One translation says pits of darkness. The other says chains of darkness. Both are right. There's not a single word that will capture the Greek, but both translations acknowledge that these angels are in a place called hell. And this, by the way, is not the normal word that is translated hell in the New Testament, Gehenna, that normally describes the lake of fire. This actually describes a particular region of hell. And so in some Bibles of the world, they don't even translate it hell. They just transliterate the Greek and they call it Tartarus because that's what the word is. He's describing a place called Tartarus. It's a holding cell where these angels will never be freed, and someday all of Tartarus, along with all of Hades, will be cast into the lake of fire. So Peter assumes, of course, that his readers in the first century understand something about these angels, but we can no longer, of course, assume that in our day. They knew why these angels were incarcerated, and so we need to ask, well, why are these divine fallen angels of God these created angels of God, restricted in in these chains of darkness. Well, Jude tells us in his little epistle. So turn over to the book of Jude. It's just a few pages right before from where you are, and it's the last book right before Revelation. It's just one page long in most of your Bibles, the book of Jude. By the way, the book of Jude and Second Peter are parallel chapters in the Bible. They're written for different purposes, but they do parallel one another and for a reason. And so the apostle Jude makes a comparison between the judgment that is going to come upon these false teachers with the judgment that has happened in the past. And he wants us to know, like Peter, that just as sure as God brought judgment In the past, God is going to bring judgment in the future. Look at verse 6 of Jude. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
He tells us there's a group of angels who did not keep their own domain, but they abandoned their proper abode. That is, they left the way God created them to function as angels. And they did something that was so vile and so unnatural that they have to be locked up and committed to pits of darkness. Verse 7 tells us what they did, just as, see those first two words? In other words, he's making a comparison. He said they're under bonds of darkness for the judgment of that great, great day. Why? Well, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, these who, the angels he just described in verse 6, since they is the same way as these did something that was comparable to what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did, who also left the natural way in which God created people to function. We learn that these angels, like the men of Sodom, indulged, notice, in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so the Bible says they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the people of Sodom indulged, the Bible says, in gross immorality. And if you read all of the accounts about Sodom, you discover that the Twin Cities were covered over in the sin of homosexuality, here called gross immorality. But they also did something in that they went after strange flesh. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you can go and read the details in Genesis 19 where there you find the men of Sodom going after strange flesh and that they went after angelic visitors that came to Lot's house. And even when those angels struck the men by the power of God with blindness, they were still clamoring at the door, driven by their lust, trying to get in and to ravage these men. That was people leaving their proper abode and going after angels. Now, you might ask, well, is there any record in Scripture where angels, like the men of Sodom, left their proper abode? Well, again, they understood it in the first century, but God wants us to understand it here in the 21st century. Turn to the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. The first five books in the Bible are named after Greek words that are found in the Septuagint. If you had a Hebrew Bible, they don't call it Genesis. That's a Greek word, genesis. It means beginning. They call it Bereshit. And so in the Jewish Bible, each of the first five books are named after the words at the beginning of each of the first five books. Bereshit is the very first word in all the Bible. It means in the beginning. And this is the book of beginnings, and it gives us a lot of insight into why things are the way they are. Look at Genesis 6.1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, by the way, every time you see the designation, the sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. And if you were reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which is what most Jews read in Christ's day and what is repeatedly quoted in the New Testament when they reference the Old Testament, Sons of God is always translated angeloi, angels, because that's what is in view. And that becomes obvious as you read the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Job, 
God reminds Job that no man can instruct an all-knowing God as seen in the question he asked him. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Where were you, Job? And then he asked, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's what we call a Hebrew parallelism. If you read Proverbs like many of you do once a day, there's parallelisms all the way through Proverbs where this phrase equals this phrase. And that's how it's structured here. The morning stars equals the angels, that is, the sons of God. And some English translations follow the Septuagint interpretively, and so they don't literally translate it, the sons of God, but one says, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. His point is, men were not around when God created the world, but the angels were, and they sang. And if you remember in Job 1 and Job 2, the Bnei Elohim, the sons of God, the Angeloi, the angels, came into the presence of God with Satan. And the term is used of both holy angels and fallen angels. And they said, in essence, God, Job follows you because you've blessed him. You've bought his love. Take it away, and it will become obvious that he doesn't really love you. And so God uh, allows certain things within certain parameters to be done to Job to prove that he is indeed a righteous man. But the point is, is that the sons of God there is a reference to angels. Now, I should say parenthetically, for the first 1,500 years of church history, there was not a single interpretation on the book of Genesis that took the sons of God cohabitating with the daughters of men is anything different than angels cohabitating with women. But I need to tell you, because it's become popular in our day, some say that what is taking place here in Genesis 6 is that the godly line of Seth is intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. But that's impossible for at least four reasons. Let me give them to you. The text does not say the sons of men saw the daughters of men were beautiful. No, rather it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they took them as wives. Clearly, verse 2, the contrast is not made between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, but between angels, the sons of God, and the daughters of men. And if this were the sin of a mixed marriage, as some teach today, then it's rather strange as taught that only the sons of Seth and not the daughters of Seth and only the daughters of Cain and not the sons of Cain were involved. And by the way, I won't be surprised if when I get to heaven someday to find out that Satan had a plan in all of this and that he was trying to corrupt the human race in order that the Messiah could not be truly human and therefore come into the world. But to interpret this, as intermarriage between believers and unbelievers is what we call eisegesis. It's reading into the text. So it must refer to angels because, again, the term sons of God, number two, is never, ever, ever used anywhere in every passage of the Old Testament but for angels. And what's interesting is these people are not consistent because while they say here it's the unbelieving men of Cain's lineage who are intermarrying, yet they acknowledge sons of God refers to angels and all the other texts. So one, they're not consistent. 
Tomorrow, we'll look at a third reason this passage is addressing the fact that angels were cohabitating with women when we continue our message entitled, The God of Judgment and Grace. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series from the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV45. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. For more information, call us at 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we continue our study of the Revelation. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.